Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 11, Lois Lane. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those excited by the anticipated DC Cinematic Universe. Today, it's all things Lois Lane. We'll probably come back to her again in the future, but in this episode, we tackle the questions and criticisms related to the character. We'll cover the tradition of how the character was honored and what we're looking forward to in the future. We'll tackle Amy Adams being in the news, react to some rumors, and if we've got time, we'll wrap with the mailbag. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel. To answer the critics and the confused, this show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who loved Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. Lois Lane, probably the second largest character in the mythos. She's had a comic book series. She had a TV show. She's been in every film and TV show except the Legion of Superheroes. And no slight against Wonder Woman, I'm a huge fan, but at one point, her brand value actually exceeded Wonder Woman's. Lois is the most adapted mainstream superhero comic book character who isn't a superhero. There are many metrics you can use to prove this, but a convenient one is how many internet movie database entries appear on the character's combined filmography and video game appearances. This is simply an illustration, so don't take it too seriously or authoritatively, but for your information, here are the numbers on the Trinity. Remember, this is the number of IMDb entries combining filmography appearances and video game appearances for the Trinity, with Batman, 315, Superman, 262, Wonder Woman, 116, and then Lois Lane comes in at 108. Now, obviously, we should take the Marvel characters into consideration for comparison's sake. Spider-Man, Marvel's biggest hero, has 136 entries. And incidentally, if you remove the video game appearances, Spider-Man has only 105 entries compared to Lois Lane's 100 entries if you remove her video game appearances. Just a difference of five entries. Now, talking again about the combined entries, Wolverine comes in at 99, the Hulk at 92, and Iron Man at 77. And just to round it out, let's look at Batman's supporting cast members. Robin comes in at 106, two less than Lois Lane, and Alfred comes in at 74. Again, this is just illustrative trivia. It's not meant as hard data. A lot of these appearances are fan films and TV sketches, but what we're seeing is that Lois Lane is iconic in her own right. Lois is a big part of making the Superman mythos a more complete human character from the cradle to beyond. Her importance is a reflection of how Superman has become, in popular culture, a romantic figure 
perhaps a little bit away from his action origins. In 78, he had a film where he never punches anybody and turns back time for the woman he loves. In Superman 2, he gives up his powers to be with her. Now in Superman 3 and in 4, Lois plays perhaps a glorified cameo role. 3 is romantically inclined towards Lana, and in 4, we have the whole double dating issue with Lacey Warfield. And by that time, they were already retreading their own steps. Superman reveals his identity to Lois again, and then takes it away again with his magic kiss. Perhaps her diminished role is part of what contributes to those two films not holding the same status or esteem, at least in part. If you believe in one true pairings, Superman perhaps isn't that guy in absolute terms, with many other contenders for his heart over the ages, but the pairing of Lois and Clark is probably about as OTP as a couple can get in popular culture. When you look at Superman Returns, it was all about how he was powerless to get the girl, and Lois and Clark was a romantic comedy with light adventure elements. Smallville was pretty much a soap opera. So given this preoccupation, romance, naturally the figure of his affection and their mostly mutual love story would loom large. Romance is compelling, but I'd suggest that there's also perhaps a little bit of an economic component that has created this emphasis and that goes beyond tradition. Romance, of course, is appealing to broader audiences, but romance also costs a whole lot less to film than effects laid in action. So this has created its own tradition where many would be satisfied with a largely romantic film and where there are only one or two action set pieces. And this is more or less what Superman Returns was, and even how Brian Singer described his own film. Of course, if you're a fan of the comics, you probably know that the role of romance tends to be greatly reduced in proportion to the action. Yet, nonetheless, it's important and present. So how does Man of Steel tackle it? That's what we're going to talk about today. I'm going to start with another lightning round. We're going to answer all those questions in short answer. And then we'll go back, show my work, and do the expanded apologetics for the rest of the podcast. Then at the end, we'll tackle a little bit of the Lois Lane news that we talked about, and perhaps some of the rumors that are coming. So, question, how did Lois get access to the Ellesmere Island site? Answer, by invitation and a complicated background of interagency jurisdiction, military tribunals, and international diplomacy, which could have been phrased better. Question, print it or I walk? Answer. It's an exchange of unlikely threats. They'd lose a gifted, prestigious reporter, and she'd owe damages and have to deal with non-compete constraints on her contract. Question. Why leak the article? Answer. For exactly the reason, she says, to reach her rescue. And it works. It's proven by Clark's arrival at the cemetery. Question. How did Clark track Lois down to the cemetery? Answer. Her article worked, and he has his own investigative chops. Question. Why was Lois at Superman's surrender to Zod? Answer. She's there at Superman's request to see her freed, and at her own, to bear witness and report. Question. How did Feor know who Lois was? Answer. Lois Lane's name was broadcast in connection to kal during a televised interview with the blogger who leaked her article. Question. Why did Zod want Lois on the ship? Answer. To interrogate her as to the location of the Codex and potentially as leverage against Kal-El. Question. Why was Lois allowed in the C-17, the plane delivering Superman's ship? Answer. To tackle emergent issues based on her first-hand receipt of the plan and her experience on a Kryptonian ship. Question. Was the kiss forced? Answer. No. It was a heat-of-the-moment acknowledgement of their mutual attraction and chemistry and not a declaration of everlasting love and commitment. 
Question. Why would Lois be attracted to Clark? Answer. He saved her life, he exhibited heroism, vulnerability, transparency, self-sacrifice, and he's pretty physically attractive. In studying his feats that he never expected to accountable for, he presents the picture of a genuine altruist and hero. Question. Why would Superman be attracted to Lois? Answer. She saw what he was, and rather being afraid, went towards it. She saw his truest self, and she honored his father's memory at great personal expense. She didn't disrespect Martha. She kept his secret even when incarcerated. She accompanied him into enemy territory. She volunteered in a mission to save humanity, and she garnered the respect of Jor-El. Even in costume, she simply sees him. And she's physically attractive. Question. Was the kiss in poor taste? Answer. No. The heat of the moment aspect blunts any criticism. The scene is played along a realistic spectrum, as opposed to being trope-driven, where the audience expectations drive romantic plot points. We're on the last stretch of questions, if you'll just hang on with me. Question. Who says it's all downhill after the first kiss? Answer. Lou Reed in the 1990s song Modern Dance. You can see a more thorough answer in blog. Question. Was her line and Superman's response cringeworthy? Answer. Yes. Question. Was that intentional? Answer, maybe it may have been an intentional antithesis of romance, where you're approaching reality versus romance. The climactic kiss is a romantic trope, but in reality, most people kiss and court kind of awkwardly and in ways that aren't quite cinematic. Question, how did Lois Lane get to the train station in time? Answer, I don't know. <laughs> Question, is Lois Lane too convenient? Answer, I don't think so, but that's up to you. Question, does Lois have enough edge? Answer, she straight up kills two people in self-defense. I think she's got edge. Question, she's got red hair. Answer, that's not a question. So what? Question, was it worth losing the love triangle? Answer, we may have lost the traditional version, but Superman's job can still come between them, and we gained a lot with this fresh. All right, that was the lightning round. Not so lightning this time around. But let's really get into the nitty gritty and talk about these uh, issues one at a time. So the first topic is Ellesmere Island. And Lois Lane says to Colonel Hardy, the only reason I'm here is because we're on Canadian soil and the appellate court overruled your injunction to keep me away. I don't know that this line bothered most people. However, as an attorney, it struck a chord with me. And you can find a more thorough analysis of this line at the legal blog, The Law and the Multiverse. An injunction is a form of judicial relief ordering some form of action as opposed to, say, money damages or criminal punishment. Here, from the context, a court has granted Colonel Hardy an injunction to keep Lois Lane away from the site. However, Lois managed to appeal the decision to a higher court, overturn it, and gain access to the base. Now, as illustrated by the blog, this is problematic because journalists do not have a right of access to military bases, so Hardy would not have to seek an injunction against her in the first place. The other problem they raise is that civil cases tend to be slow. However, I think an apologetic framework is possible if you take into account her Canadian soil comment and don't assume that the Ellesmere research site is a sovereign U.S. military base. That gives Canada the authority and perhaps an interest in inviting Lois, specifically just her, to observe and report on something of possible historic import to be accredited to the nation of Canada. Lois is not there asserting any kind of non-existent press access privilege as critiqued by the blog, but instead as an invitee to let the world know about this history-making discovery made on Canadian soil. So with a standing invitation, the U.S. military could move to enjoin, or block via injunction, Canada's grant of access to the site that they're currently participating in or with citing some sort of security interest. 
a court could have granted that injunction on that reasoning requiring Lois to appeal. So then Lois appeals to a higher court who likely reverses on technical grounds, which entitle Canada to allow invitees onto their own soil during joint ventures. While the question of speed is an issue, if everything is handled by military tribunals and the decisions are driven more by international diplomatic considerations than law, then everything could be quickly resolved as we see in the film. You could still nitpick Lois's usage of the word appellate court when speaking about a higher military tribunal, but her words can still be broadly received as technically correct. If all this legalese is making your head spin, I'll just quickly provide a simple hypothetical chain of events. Canada discovers the site, and because of its significance, invites the U.S. military to aid in working it. There is no press privilege to access the site, but Lois catches wind of its newsworthiness and plies the Canadian Prime Minister to grant her access as an invitee. She convinces him that this story will be of importance to Canada and his administration. So the PM grants the invitation and orders her to have access. Well, the U.S. military on the site receive word of her arrival and rush out to a military tribunal to deny Lois access despite the Prime Minister's invitation and the Canadian soil. So Lois's departure is blocked and she goes over the tribunal's head to a higher tribunal, one with greater political and diplomatic consideration, likely recognizing that Canada could just as easily eject the U.S. from their soil as they invited them in the first place. And so they find some justification to reverse the lower decision, and they reinstate the Canadian Prime Minister's invitation. Under such sequence of events, nothing said is out of place, but there probably would have been better or more elegant dialogue to get to the same or better results. One more legal mumbo-jumbo topic, and then we're done with that, I promise. Lois says, print it or I walk. Perry replies, you can't, you're under contract. This one too, you can find a complete analysis of at the same blog, Law and the Multiverse. Now, obviously, the planet can't force her to work there. However, her employment contract could include provisions which would result in consequences that she'd be reluctant to face, such as owing damages to the paper, or falling afoul the non-compete clause prohibiting her from going to a competitor with her talents. It's basically an unlikely exchange of threats. They'd lose a gifted prestigious reporter, and she'd owe damages and have to deal with not being able to work in her field. A non-compete clause prevents talent from running to a competitor and using their abilities, knowledge, and experience against their original employer. Of course, from the Collider interview with Zack Snyder, we know that Metropolis resides in a federal district, which, incidentally, declined to enforce non-compete clauses. But careful constructions of a contract can try to get around that as well. The real question is, if Lois knows this, then why make the threat in the first place? And it's simple. It's just to show how serious she is. Perry reminds her of the consequences, but she could still walk. And in fact, she does do something that subjects her to possible termination and some of the consequences of walking under an employment contract. When she leaks the story, the shareholders threaten to sue her, which is like the money damages, and she's suspended, so she can't work. So her punishment for leaking the article is a lesser form of the same punishment that she would have experienced if she had quit under contract, reinforcing the idea that such a contract is in place. Okay, that's the last of the technical legalese arguments. I promise I had to get them out of my system, and if you made it this far, we'll talk about much more intuitive issues going forwards. So why leak the article? Lois tells us explicitly. She says, 
I want the story out there because I want my mystery man to know I know the truth. What's interesting about that is that she isn't afraid of the truth compared to everyone else that is implied to freak out over this information about an extraterrestrial. Publication is Lois's only way to reach her mystery man, and indeed it worked because Clark shows up at the cemetery. Now we'll talk about that in a bit, but another thing we should point out is that Lois's approach is also an illustration for why Superman was smart to use Swanwick as a liaison rather than the press as we talked about in our last episode. When her story is released to the press, Lois lost control of the message. She was sold out by Woodburn, she was name-dropped on a 24-hours news channel, and accordingly, she was picked up by the feds. By comparison, the very nature of the military requires that they have the ability to control information. The classic example is concealing troop movements from the enemy. So by funneling his communications through a secure line, like Swanwick, Superman ensures that his message reaches Washington without the distortion of the media and its commentators. So that's just another reason that Superman would reach out to Swanwick as opposed to making a public statement or debut for the press, as he may have done in older or other versions of the story. The next topic we have is how did Clark track down Lois to the cemetery? So I said that Clark showing up at the cemetery is proof that Lois's article works. And how? I think many people assume that after Lois visited Martha, Martha gives Clark a call and that's how that matter is resolved. And honestly, if they wanted a smoother, logical timeline, that's probably the way to go. However, that's not the way the film went. Martha says a reporter came by here and Clark responds, she's a friend, don't worry. So it's clear that Martha didn't call Clark to tell him about Lois. I think the reason the filmmakers took this approach, in my opinion, was to increase the impact of Clark's surprise visit and the impact of him revealing his discovery to his mother in person. You might have lost a little impact if they signaled that the two had talked on the phone prior. The lines might have gone something like, Mom, don't worry about the reporter that you called me about. She's a friend. I have some news that I had to tell you in person. It's a tiny nitpick, but let's just move on. So Clark arriving at the cemetery just as Lois was standing there isn't an accident. Rather, it's proof that Lois's plan worked and that her article reached him. You have to remember that Lois leaked the article days, if not weeks ago. Then she flew back to the Arctic and traced Clark's steps back until she arrived in Smallville. Now we get a glimpse of that search, but we only see the landmarks that we've already been shown in the film. But Lois, in her narration or in the reading of her article, refers to a lifetime of covering tracks and to urban legends, implying a much larger unseen history. There's no way she could have investigated and covered all that, but through effort and time. So in the meantime, Clark hasn't been sitting with Jor-El and just twiddling his thumbs. He doesn't know that Zod is coming, and he had so many questions. So Clark spends his time asking his multitude of questions. However, one of the things that I'm sure he did shortly after dropping Lois off, or shortly after discovering how to fly, was to check the internet for two things. First, the reaction to the departure of his ship, and two, whether Lois was okay. Now, the Pentagon's denials may have given him the sense that he could learn from Jor-El in peace, rather than expect a military search for his ship, and finding Lois's article would have told him that she's somebody to keep an eye on, a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter who has seen his face and is invested in learning more about him. Clark would justifiably begin to keep tabs on her and employ his own investigative chops. 
Now, why am I going into this so much? Because it answers some questions later about their mutual trust, admiration, and attraction, based on, perhaps, a lengthy, long-distance courtship of sorts. All right, let's jump ahead from that scene to the time that Superman is surrendering to Zod. Why is Lois, a civilian, a journalist, present at that scene? And I believe that she's there at Superman's request and at her own. Superman wants her there to see that she isn't being kept inside and isn't about to be disappeared again. And Lois may want to be there simply to witness the handoff, to be able to report on it, and out of genuine concern for Superman's well-being. Now, why would the military agree to these terms? And it's because they have no ability to enforce an alternative. If we view it cynically, let's say they forbid Lois from being allowed topside, well, then Superman could just take off rather than surrender. They're relying entirely on Superman's cooperation in this circumstance. Now, we know that Superman is too trustworthy for that, but they haven't developed that experience with him yet. So then the next question is, how did Feora know who Lois was? And that one's pretty simple and straightforward. Zod had clearly gathered enough intelligence about Earth to gauge its military capabilities, to use its language, to assess Kal-El's presence, and to recognize that Kal-El's surrender and interrogation was necessary. The broadcast of his ultimatum demonstrates the ability to hijack everything with a screen. It isn't too hard to imagine that some part of the intelligence gathered was the broadcast of Lois's name in connection to Kal-El during that interview with the blogger who leaked the article. Like any military commander, he observes the drop site that they're about to land into, they see that she's there, and we come to the next big question, which is often a point of criticism for the film. And that question is, why did Zod want Lois on the ship? The short and obvious answer is to interrogate her as to the location of the Codex and to use her as potential leverage against Kal-El. But let's develop and explain that. First, let's be clear. Zod doesn't need Lois. She is not a necessity. And Zod didn't ask for or demand her presence at the drop site. This is clear from the fact that Feora's demand comes as a surprise, and that Colonel Hardy objects. That doesn't mean that Zod would pass up an opportunity that presents itself. Let's put ourselves in Zod's mindset for a moment. Zod has come to Earth essentially for one thing, the Codex. But it's the very same thing that is his sole weakness in this encounter. Zod has superior firepower, superior technology, and better information and intelligence on the humans than they have on him. Now, if Zod were adept at diplomacy or guile, he could have went about this differently. But because of Krypton's caste system, his toolbox is limited. For example, rather than petitioning the council, he attempts a coup. And rather than pretending to come in peace, he issues an ultimatum. But nevertheless, he has enough sense not to ask for the Codex directly. Again, the only thing that he wants or needs from humanity is information about the Codex. Now, sure, he could have terraformed the planet as his first strike, but then he may have spent a lifetime digging through rubble looking for the Codex. Or worse, he doesn't know if such attack or action would cause Kal-El or the humans to destroy the Codex in the process or in retaliation. Zod doesn't know what information, if any, Jor-El has passed on to Kal-El. So Zod can't reveal his one and only desire and let humanity know his only reason for sparing them up to this point. Instead, quite reasonably, he indirectly asks for the two individuals on the planet that he is aware of most likely having information about the Codex, Kal-El 
and his human female confidant. Zod has reliable interrogation technology, so once they're aboard his ship, he can drop any pretense of treaty. Zod has the broadcast where the blogger says that Lois knows who Kal-El is. And from Zod's ultimatum, Zod makes it clear that Kal-El has kept himself hidden, as he says, for reasons unknown. So the idea that Kal-El allowed somebody into his circle of confidence, that's enough reason to interrogate that confidant. If Kal-El entrusted her with his identity, who knows what else? Like the Codex, he may have also entrusted her with. Zod wants Lois for the same reason that the government wanted Lois. She's alleged to have unique and confidential information about Kal-El. Whether she does or not, Zod obviously doesn't know. It's merely an accusation. However, from Zod's perspective, the planet's authorities seized her based on this allegation. And if they had reason to believe in the information, why should he discard that opportunity? He didn't specifically ask for Lois to be there, but clearly they were monitoring closely enough that they recognized her on sight. Since the opportunity presented itself, there was no reason not to take it. Nothing requires Zod, only take Kal-El. And having Lois increases the viability and the likelihood of his plan succeeding. Now just a quick aside, a little bit of editorial, note that when Lois volunteers to go, Superman doesn't object. This suggests that at this point in time, Superman still believes that Zod may honor his word. But in relation to Lois, it means that he views her as strong enough to do this. He doesn't immediately consider her incapable of accompanying him or view her only as a potential liability or rescuee. He sees her as an ally, and she proves worthy of that trust and belief. Additionally, look at the ease with which Lois volunteers showing her bravery and her strength. She's stepping directly into the lion's den without hesitation. She shows that same bravery for the next question and the next scene that we're going to talk about where she volunteers. And yet that's another common criticism about Lois being conveniently ever-present where superficially she seems like she doesn't belong. And that's on the C-17, the cargo plane that delivers Superman's ship. Critics, detractors, and the confused will ask, why was Lois allowed in the plane, the C-17 delivering Superman's ship. We answered this pretty thoroughly in our mailbag last episode. But in brief, Lois volunteers and the military agrees to have Lois there to tackle any emergent issues arising from the alien technology and the plan. Lois received the plan firsthand from Jora, and she's the only human alive with experience being on a Kryptonian ship. Those two combined facts means that she may have something to offer that she didn't even know that she could, even if she tried to convey everything that she thought she knew. They have to deal with this spontaneity because they can't test the ship without tipping their hand to Tiptonians. So Lois is there for her experience. And that's what happens in the movie, even if it is for such a small thing, like the fact that the command key should be flush with the console. As another quick question around this area, Superman saves Lois from falling out of the plane. As to why Lois could fall while the debris flies upwards, we've answered this several times on the podcast. You can check out our first episode or episode 10. But in short, only things that have been in the Phantom Zone or exposed to Phantom Drive energy gets sucked into the singularity. Now, this is Superman's third physical rescue of Lois, fourth if you count freedom from the government, and roughly six or so if you count stopping Zod from shooting her down, stopping the world engine, and then stopping Zod himself. Does Superman save Lois too much in this film? I think she's about on par with most other portrayals, and clearly this Lois is no damsel in distress, as we'll tackle and talk about when we discuss her edge in a later question. 
So they alight to the ground, they kiss, and we get the common complaint and question of whether that kiss was forced. The criticism is that the kiss wasn't earned, it wasn't romantic, it didn't feel natural, and it wasn't realistic since the characters haven't had time to develop feelings for one another. And combined with this are the questions of why Lois would be attracted to Clark and why Superman would be attracted to Lois. Well, one way to answer these sort of criticisms is almost to agree to the points and say, so what? In other words, Man of Steel endeavors to be realistic rather than a movie suspended by tropes. The idea of having to earn a kiss or for a kiss to be a romantic climax, these are tropes external to reality. Yes, we've been trained by film to expect these things correlate, but in reality, you just need a heat-of-the-moment mutual attraction and chemistry, and then you can kiss. It doesn't have to be laden with meaning or be a declaration of everlasting love. Sometimes a kiss is just a kiss. We talked earlier about how romantic the Superman legacy has become, so there may be some merit to the idea that this was an intentionally anti-romantic approach, but more on that later. That's one way you could answer the question. The other way you could answer these complaints is to show that it is more than an immediate in-the-moment attraction, and they actually have had time to develop deeper and more intense feelings towards one another. I think the harrowing series of events that the two just underwent easily explains any intensity to their feelings. But as far as depth, I think Clark exhibits transparency, and Lois proves herself extraordinary. The two start off as rescuer and rescuee, with Clark saving her life while jeopardizing her career. Lois leaks her story to find him, not to make her mark on history, but to reach him. She defies the conventional thinking of humanity being frightened of Clark because of what he is. And as we discussed in the timeline above, she spends weeks researching him. And in doing this, she's seeing his story while he is being his truest self, a man that wants to help even if it costs him roots and being able to settle down. By his movements, Clark obviously isn't doing any of this for glory or fame. Instead, he's a true altruist who's exhibiting heroism and self-sacrifice. He's a guardian angel, as she writes. Now, also in the above timeline, Clark is watching her research him and getting closer to the truth, and he doesn't foil her investigation. He sees somebody who's drawn towards him rather than running away or putting out fear-mongering, somebody who's pursuing the truth. Now, doubtless, he investigates her body of work, and it shows her to be impressive. By the time that they meet at Jonathan's grave, Clark already knows that he's exposed, but Lois offers to tell his story. She's not afraid of him, and Clark is not afraid of her, despite her profession being about spreading the truth. In an incredible act of vulnerability and trust, he tells her the story of his most painful moment and the questions which have been tormenting him for years. Was my father right? And if he wasn't, what does that mean about his death and my part in it? You know, you can live in a home with somebody for a lifetime and never share anything of substance. However, in that moment, Clark laid his soul bare to Lois, and she proved worthy of it. She honors Clark's father's memory at great personal expense, and she keeps his secret, even when incarcerated and intimidated by the government. Lois accompanies him into enemy territory. She volunteers in a mission to save humanity, and she garners the attention and respect of Jor-El. And even when Clark is in costume, she simply sees him. There's more than enough there for the two to have deep affection towards one another, even in such a short amount of time. 
as an audience, we don't necessarily have the time to feel the weight of that develop, except I think it's palpable in the quote-unquote interrogation scene. The chemistry there is powerful, and despite the stakes, there is an adorable playfulness there. The words that go unspoken but are clearly communicated in looks and posture and expression go something like, you endured abduction and questioning from me, and you didn't betray me. I can trust you. And you revealed yourself and asked for me. I can trust you. To have somebody go to bat for you like that is a powerful, moving thing. I'm going to steal something from an interview answer that Amy Adams gave Vogue regarding how you know if you're in love. And she says, he'll make you feel special, he'll celebrate you, and he'll bring out the best in you. Now, Clark easily makes Lois feel special by being utterly transparent with her and making her his sole confidant. He faces the military for her, and he faces the Kryptonians with her. And I think it's safe to say that meeting Clark has pushed Lois to be her best, whether sinking a story for ethical reasons or fighting Kryptonians. So there is room for interpreting love here. But under either interpretation, you can see that the kiss was realistic. But even if you buy the idea that the kiss is realistically precipitated by events, there's the criticism and the question, both in story and out, of whether the kiss was in poor taste. The idea of the criticism is that given the death and the destruction surrounding them, that the two should have been more solemn and grave rather than impassioned. And as a creative criticism, the argument is that the filmmakers shouldn't have forced such a moment amidst an apocalyptic setting with death and violence preceding and following the kiss. While addressing the in-story criticism first, I don't think it was a matter of taste per se. Superman had just saved the Earth in his mind. He doesn't know that Zod is still out there. He's passed his ultimate test, and in the heat of the moment, he's profoundly attracted to this precious woman that he's embracing. And so they're moved to kiss. And this is realistic, as opposed to being trope-driven. In reality, you feel what you feel, whether it's appropriate or not. You can feel carnal in a cathedral or furious at the fallen in a funeral. You can resent a relative. Feelings aren't bound by taste or propriety. So the film realistically approaches theirs happening in a moment that you could frown upon. And the fact that you could frown upon it, I think critics take that as tone deafness. Well, the awkwardness of the scene makes me concede that this is entirely a possibility. But on the other hand, it could be incredibly intentional. I mean, everything in this film has so much incredible intentionality, it makes me think it's possible that this was also intentional. Not to hit on some preconceived kiss quota or some romantic trope, but like the rest of the film as an intentional confrontation of our trope-based expectations, presenting something that's confronting but nonetheless entirely valid and relevant. And I think this is perhaps supportable by some of our next questions. When Lois says, they say it's all downhill after the first kiss, the question is, who says it's all downhill after the first kiss? You know, Lois breaks off the kiss to say this, and I consulted with many individuals more cultured and well-read than I, with decades of life experience and different interests and fields, and yet I could only find one person who could place the reference. And in this case, they is Lou Reed in the 1990s song Modern Dance. Now, you can read the blog entry that talks about this more, but I don't think this is a common saying at all. Rather, I think Lois is quoting this song in reference to the unconventional nature of their courtship. However, her reference goes over Clark's head. She's a city-dwelling military brat with international or multicultural past from a base-hopping childhood. Maybe. We don't know for certain with this version of Lois. However, Clark is 
somewhat younger and he's from Kansas in a pre-broadband internet era. And so the reference properly goes right over his head and he responds, I'm pretty sure that only counts when you're kissing a human. And so you have to ask yourself, was her line and Superman's response cringeworthy? And I think you know by now that I love this film. I don't think anyone who doesn't could spend this many hours analyzing and explaining every proposed plot hole raised by detractors. However, a part of me can't help but feel that these lines and a few others maybe could have been workshop polished so I wouldn't have to do acrobatics for their apologetics. Superman's statement is unintentionally derogatory towards Lois. If applied as stated, then things will go down for him since he's kissing a human. I can't find any intrinsic meaning in these lines, and so my best effort is to argue that their complete awkwardness is, in and of itself, purposeful. It's an intentional antithesis of romance, whereas the climactic kiss is the romantic trope where the lovebirds share profound, intimate, sweet nothings like, you complete me. In reality, people kiss and court awkwardly, and very little of it could be deemed cinematic. Instead, this could be viewed as a perfectly modern moment that reflects the tone of the film. They're not necessarily in love, not really, but today people don't need to be to kiss. Instead, it was a realistic and pragmatic, you know, I'm really attracted to you right now, instead of romantic and idealized. It's sort of a send-up and counter to the following that you just may recognize. Can you read my mind? Do you know what it is that you do to me? I don't know who you are. Just a friend from another star. Here I am, like a kid out of school. Holding hands with a god. I'm a fool. Will you look at me? Quivering. Like a little girl, shivering. You can see right through me. Can you read my mind? Can you picture the things I'm thinking of? Wondering why you are all the wonderful things you are. You can fly. You belong in the sky. You and I could belong to each other. If you need a friend. I'm the one to fly to. If you need to be loved, here I am. Read my mind. recognize that as the over-the-top, the extraordinarily romantic thoughts of Lois Lane in Superman the movie. And Man of Steel takes the approach where their kiss diffuses the unrealistic expectations of some epic romance where Superman would turn back time for Lois 
when they've just met. Instead, the kiss is just acknowledging there is unquestionable chemistry. And that's why the two joke while they're doing it. It's a little in your face, but it fits with the overall mission of the film. The terribleness of the lines may be an indictment of what film romance has become. Now, honestly, I don't know. And I would love your answers, insights, and comments on this in the form of email feedback or comments on the blog. All right, now that we've extricated ourselves from their kiss, uh, let's quickly tackle a few more questions. All right, the next question is, how did Lois get to the train station in time? In real time, about two minutes pass from Lois noticing Zod and Superman's re-entry into Metropolis airspace until the time that she's there to witness Zod's final moments. She travels from ground zero to the train station, which is apparently blocks away. Honestly, I think this is simply a minor and forgivable continuity error. Simple as that. If you force me to dig in my heels and explain it, some aspect of what we are seeing has to be unreliable. So you have a couple of options. Either the distance was deceptively far, but actually immediate, or the fight was cut down, but actually took longer with unseen portions, or Although it's implied that the fireballs crossing the sky include Zod and Superman, that's just satellite debris, and the Kryptonians actually land immediately next to Ground Zero, though Lois tracking that is off-screen. Or we could get even more ridiculous and say that a speedster delivered Lois without explanation. Now, none of those are particularly satisfying answers, but if you take the time element out of it, it's not too hard to explain how Lois ended up the train station, even if she couldn't see them crash land into it. As the debris falls from the sky, the film shows the planet employees turn to watch it and you get the reaction shot of their faces. They've lived in Metropolis all their lives. They know its streets and its layout like the back of their hands. And Lois could tell that it was headed approximately for the station. And so she began to go that way. And as she neared the area, she could see the surrounding damage and the people streaming out and she'd know that she has the right location. Now, of these answers, the one that I think has the most merit is the possibility that there are portions of the fight that are cut out, and that's because Batman v Superman includes rumors that suggests that some of the film will take place perspective of Bruce Wayne in Metropolis at the time of the fight, and in order for him to have time to have reaction and action during a period, the length and duration of the fight may have to be extended to accommodate that story. Of course, the fact that Lois shows up at the right time and the right place leads to the next criticism and question, which is, is Lois too convenient? And I think we've addressed a lot of those issues with our earlier questions, but it does appear that she gets the benefit of a lot of coincidence. But to me, it's nothing that's story or reality break. You know, humans are notoriously bad at estimating likelihood and coincidence. We routinely find even mathematically probable events astonishing or discount actual events as fiction because we're bad at gauging the convergence events. One common example that I can use of how reality differs from our intuition is the birthday problem, sometimes called birthday paradox. And that sets forth that in a room of 23 people, that the chance of two of them sharing the same birthday is above 50%. Now, I think I've already bored you to tears with the legal mumbo jumbo at the start of this episode, so I'm going to spare you the math on this. But it was the basis of a computer game, that I developed in my undergraduate studies. So if you let me, I'd probably ramble on this for hours. I'm not going to do that. Nonetheless, we can argue that it's a filmmaker's job to be attuned 
to our intuition and our inclination. Everybody is going to draw their own line. What their own subjective tolerance level is for contrivance that enables the story. For me, Man of Steel doesn't cross it, but I can see how it might for some. So the answer to whether Lois is too convenient is frankly subjective, and it's going to come down to you rather than the film. If you Google historical coincidences and add some adjective like amazing, astonishing, extraordinary, or mind-blowing to your search, you may read some stories which might increase your tolerance for fictional coincidence based on its possibility and perhaps prevalence in reality. And so another question is whether Lois has enough, uh, shall we say, edge. Some might use unkind or ungracious ways to describe the same. I don't think cruelty is inherent in the character, and I'm going to stick to the word edge, but I think you know what I mean. I think Lois has it. Uh, the Lois that we're given has a hand in her own rescue. I mean, she kills two Kryptonians in self-defense. This Lois stands up to Colonel Hardy. She subverts Perry's authority. She resists military interrogation. She is fearless before Feora and Zod. Like we said before, she kills two in self-defense and she briefly fights off a Kryptonian. And then she volunteers to go on a dangerous mission to help save humanity. You can have a character that is strong, brave, and have edge without being unpleasant, irritating, petty, or insulting. And so I think this is an admirable take on Lois, and this is a uh, refreshing take on Lois, who's still edgy and a role model without having some of that negative character that some may traditionally expect from the character of Lois. So one of the things people always bring up is the fact that this Lois has red hair. And I think we're going to revisit this topic and this territory specifically as it pertains to Wonder Woman. So I'm not going to address it here and now, except to say that we've had red-headed Lois Lanes in the past, and I personally, despite having a love towards all womankind, have a particular weakness for redheads. Along those lines, I'm going to limit my gushing about Amy Adams, but we're talking about a gorgeous, talented, five-time Academy Award nominee. She's a mother, she's whip-smart, she's got admirable values, and like much of the cast of Batman Superman, she has ties to our nation's servicemen. With her limited screen time, her Lois is a more real character than a caricature. And so I think with Man of Steel alone, she hasn't quite become that iconic Lois. But with Batman v Superman and her already cast for Justice League and the inevitable role she's going to play in subsequent standalone Superman films, I have no doubt that she's going to get there. So obviously one of the big changes in Man of Steel compared to some of the more traditional versions is what happened to the love triangle. And, you know, I love all of Superman, <laughs> or I love much of Superman, and I uh, and I I of course enjoy renditions that involve the triangle. And so there's many things to recommend and suggest that there's good things about the triangle. And a couple of things that we'll go over are there's tradition, and it's what we know, it's what we're familiar with. But you have to sort of note that the emphasis on the triangle, at least recently, tends to be a more modern invention. Clark used to take a back seat during some of the Silver Age. And as many as we today may disagree with the Kill Bill monologue and the analysis, 
it was appropriate from the perspective of an elderly Bill at that point in time, given his age. So when I say tradition, I'm talking about our tradition as modern readers in this era. Another thing you get from the triangle is the symbolism, the idea of that dual identity with something secret and special inside, which would be adored if only you could let it out, right? That the object of your affection would and does love you when you let that something special out. And there's something powerful about that idea of the uh, hidden secret special person uh, within each and every one of us. Certainly, you get drama with the triangle. You get a lot of angst and possible amazement out of the triangle. The reveal is always a huge and emotional and historical moment in any version or retelling of Superman. And certainly there's value in that drama. But I think the biggest and the most important thing and one of the reasons that maybe we're very attached to the triangle is the length. The triangle, and perhaps you can tie that to the drama, essentially it allows the relationship to grow in all these kinds of hyper overdramatic stages. First, you have that infatuation, and then you have that tension due to secrets and danger. You have the reveal, and then you have the honeymoon stage, and then a mature relationship and so on. It's a good dynamic for long-form serial storytelling, and that's why it's ideal for the soap opera of TV and comics. But with Man of Steel, we get a take that has its own benefits. And one of the big benefits, of course, is the rationality, okay? We have something that is an authentic reality. And in that, Lois gets to be a more realized person. She isn't blind. She isn't lacking in judgment. And she isn't subjected to some unrealistic trope. So now we're dealing with something that's more authentic and rational and real. The relationship itself can be based in truth. And so you don't have lies. You have less drama, but you have more honesty and integrity. And one of the ongoing sort of paradoxes that we have to reconcile with those sort of long form soap opera versions of Superman is how we esteem him as a character who's always honest, never lies, who we uphold as forthright and having integrity. And in some cases, he says he never lies. And yet he spends his whole life lying and those lies perhaps hurting and harming his loved ones. And so Man of Steel sidesteps that issue by allowing them to have authentic, truthful relationships. Certainly, Man of Steel's approach is more original. It's a new take that's fresh. And so it's the flip side of tradition. Tradition is comforting. It's something that we know, but at the same time, it can get old. And so now we have an opportunity to see something new, think different, to get a different take, touch, a different angle, a relationship. And those things can develop and have its own valuable and interesting uh, tradition to develop over time. The Man of Steel approach gives us a partnership. In a triangle where two-thirds of it are occupied by the same man, it's really all about Superman. But here... We're making Lois a partner in the identity, and it becomes much more a tale of equals rather than something that is self-centered on just the man. Now, with all of these things that I'm mentioning, and so with things like truthfulness and rationality, authenticity and partnership, you can also get maturity. So there is value to the symbolism of that inner person that needs to come out. But that is ultimately somewhat of a juvenile parable. A person that needs to come out, person with untapped potential is still undeveloped and not mature. But in this case, Clark is a full-grown adult and he's already shown such level of transparency and communication. And those kind of things means that we can dive into a more mature relationship rather than sort of giggly high school flirting and back and forth. And he said, she said, and those things that sort of precipitate drama, as we might have said with the uh, triangle. And so with all of that, 
we get speed. And so we get a relationship that can go faster and get to the good stuff in a plausible way and in a way that is suitable for film where we don't have a whole lot of time to develop these things. And so I think Man of Steel isn't the one and only true approach, but it is a completely valid and justifiable approach. All right. Now, looking forwards, we want to know, you know, what kind of role will Lois Lane be playing going forwards? And in Batman v Superman, I suspect she'll be playing uh, relatively a large role. So far, this seems to be reflected by the fact that from all the set photos we've seen, she's never very far from Superman. If we talk about some of the rumors surrounding the other Trinity members where Batman is a veteran and Wonder Woman immortal, then Clark is still technically the rookie. But how can he be a chairman or first amongst equals? He has to have some source of authority. And I think that could be his power, but I think it may also come from his moral authority. And Lois is the key to that. Lois, more than any other character, is Superman embracing humanity. Clark was able to wander away from the farm and from Martha, but I don't think the same could be said about him in relation to Lois. Now, ironically, despite Batman being the only actual human in Trinity, his emotional detachment and his pragmatism dehumanizes him. And Superman may relate to the human condition better. And that serves as his assertion of moral authority amongst the Trinity and amongst the League. For lack of a better term, you could almost say that Lois is Superman's heart. And so by actually humanizing and embodying his heart, it places somebody in a position of authority in the Trinity with a heart that he wears on his sleeve or on his cape, however you want to turn that phrase. Uh, let's look at Justice League. So for Justice League, we know that Lois is cast, but with such a large ensemble, she necessarily has to play a smaller role. It's going to be difficult to give her a relevant role, but nonetheless, her casting establishes that Superman's supporting cast and his world building and his connective tissue is the most salient at this time. You'll notice that Lois is contracted and cast for Justice League, but not yet Alfred. And so after the Justice League films, we may have standalone Superman films. And that's exciting because after all the world building was accomplished and after all the time has passed, they have all the room in the world to delve into a deeper, more mature relationship with Lois Clark. Contrast this against what we've had before, which tended to be childish infatuation or gravely adult depression. And I'm talking about, you know, Donner films. And then on the flip side, Superman Returns, where Superman doesn't get the girl. Here, we're able to get Superman past the honeymoon stage but not smack Superman with the impotence of not being able to be with or have the love of his life. Of course, as we're talking about future projects down the line, the specter of ageism could be raised. I'm going to table that along with the hair color issue and future Wonder Woman discussion, so we'll talk about it then. So this episode couldn't be timed better because Amy Adams, a press junket for Tim Burton's Big Eyes, has started to talk a little bit about her role in Batman v Superman. I'm going to play some clips from her Collider and ComingSoon.net interviews, and then I'm going to give my impressions. It kind of blows my mind because every time I write about it, there's just so many characters and there's so many things to write. Can you tell me a little bit about how Lois Lane will kind of hold her own and stand out amongst all these superheroes now? You know, Lois is still sort of like the key to the information, you know? She's the girl going out and getting it and figuring it out and putting it together and all of that. So she's very much involved, um, but I kind of leave the heavy lifting to the boys, you know, so to speak, in, you know. <laughs> but 
yeah, they're awesome together. It's kind of like this big fest of muscles and I wouldn't capes. complain. Being no, no, that. it was really kind of nice. And then you had like Jason Momoa and like Gal Gadot, and I felt very short and uh, <laughs> yeah. Been busy shooting Batman Superman for the last eight months, nine months, <laughs> six something like that. Something yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. A so, really so, long time. Yeah, yes. how, how's that been going? Is because obviously we don't really know. We've seen like Wonder Woman. We've seen all these different characters. But Lois seems to be she's still in it, right? She's still in the movie. Oh right? yeah, yeah. There, oh, okay. there are some like you know paparazzi shots on the street with me and me and Soups, as I call him. So oh, okay. uh, he's uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely in it, and uh, yeah, I know. Um, but it's exciting to get to bring all of these other characters, and I was really excited that Gal was involved because. Um, it's nice to have another girl on set. Even if we don't work together a lot, it was nice to have her there. Yeah, but, but some people think that Wonder Woman's kind of competition for Lois, this sort of, yeah. They no. always thought, you put another woman and automatically can't fight. <laughs> uh, well, that's, really no, the comics, that's how the comics play out. The comics are kind of like that, where they sort of, you know. I think that's like a, a male fantasy thing. I don't think that's reality. I actually, yeah. No, um, I don't know how it will turn out if we're going to be competition, but we are not in this, oh, no, I can no. safely say. And we are not in life. We. We actually really, uh, I'm, like I said, I was just so excited. And she's like a, the coolest girl ever. Well, what can I say? I love, love, love Amy Adams and her ability to handle these questions with charm and grace. It's something that all actors on a big franchise film have to do when promoting their other works, but it's not something that every actor can handle with equal poise. And she's just a great ambassador for the craft film. I pray and I hope Terrio gives her some opportunities to really show her talent. So Amy affirms what we've already discussed above. She has a role in this, and moreover, she talks about the camaraderie on set. And she seems to be describing a bit of an expository role again, but I expect Adams to be able to elevate it like she did in Man of Steel. Again, I love Man of Steel, but it's sparse on dialogue. And so it relies heavily on the performances to give effect to what few lines each actor has. And the cast of Man of Steel was more than up to the task. I'm happy that Adams confirms that at least for Batman v Superman, there's no contest for Superman's affections. I never doubted for a second that they'd avoid that degenerative cat fight, but it's nice to have confirmation from the actor's mouth. Last but not least is the spoiler-laden report claiming its source to be a pre-production script drafted by Terrio a month before Principal Shoot itself. I consider this to be spoiler heavy, so we're not going to discuss it until the end of the podcast. So if you don't want to hear any spoilers, you can cut out early. If you want to hear the discussion, stick around until after the outro. These rumors are preempting our regularly scheduled mailbag. Uh, also, we're going to be on holiday schedule. So our next episode is not going to be until 2015. So a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you and yours. In the new year, we're going to start to tackle those really big controversies. So look forward to that. All right, I think I've rambled on long enough. Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network. So here are some promos for the network shows that I suggest you check out if you want to extend your enjoyment of the Superman mythos. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman. 
Golden Age Superman. The Superman Fan Podcast. The DC Comics Presents Show. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. It's Superman, the Schuster Herald Podcast. The Kara's Herald Podcast. Superman Forever Radio. Superman Lives. Up, up, and away. Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. The Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Bride, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Saab, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff and you've been sticking with me. Hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful for each and every listener and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got questions you want answered or insights you want to share or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son. Well, folks, welcome to the spoiler section. I said mailback was preempted, but I'll make exception for this question, which seems oddly appropriate. It's by Teutonic or Toontonic, who asked a while back, what's with the outro music? And basically, if you don't recognize it, it is an instrumental version of LaRue's Bulletproof. So Bulletproof, Superman, get it? Okay. (laughs) I'm not really a music guy, but somebody picked the music for me and I appreciate it. So as far as rumors go, I think if you've listened to the podcast, you know I always lean towards skepticism and I'm reluctant to propagate or discuss unsubstantiated rumors. And I'm even more reticent to talk about them if either they're complete fiction, seem very sketchy, or if they're sourced against the studio's will. It's one thing if the studio intends the leak, or if they're filming on location, knowing that set photos are going to get out. But it's another thing if the information comes from a source who is expected and contracted to hold the information in confidence, and then they either illicitly or illegally obtained or distributed the information. In this latter case, we're not talking about a leak who's acting under whistleblower ethics. We're talking about an unauthorized breach over a piece of entertainment. Now, all that said, the information is out there, so I'm going to talk about it, but only as hypothetical prompts. Even the article publishing these details hedges by saying the script is not the final shooting script, and I'm sure you're aware that things get tweaked and changed even on the day of the shoot. So first, my overall impression is that there's nothing in here that breaks the movie for me. In fact, I'm dangerously close to being biased towards this rumor because it tends to affirm many of the things that this show and my website are about. Pretending that these rumors are true, let's see what lines up with our predictions so far. First, that this is a Man of Steel sequel and a Superman-heavy film. Next, that Lois and Clark's relationship is serious and that they live together. The film continues to explore the realistic implications of Superman. 
and therefore the past is relevant to the future. Superman's past actions create jeopardy going forwards, and General Swanwick sees Superman as an ally. The world generally embraces Superman, and the article even characterizes Batman as quote-unquote cautious rather than condemning. The only sticking point is the alleged dialogue, but we don't have the context or the delivery. Imagine that you are told flatly that this occurs in Man of Steel. What was I supposed to do? Just let them die? Maybe. If we were told Jonathan Kent's response glibly, we wouldn't have Kevin Costner's performance. We wouldn't see the worry, the hesitation, and the subsequent comfort. We wouldn't have young Clark's pain and his confusion. The lines proposed in the rumor are blunt and confronting, but they still may see development, and like I said, they're lacking context and delivery. So let's parse out some of those details and why they may naturally flow from the Man of Steel or what our reactions are. First, there's the aspect that this is a sequel. Now, I'm surprised at how many people came away from Man of Steel expecting it to be the sum total Superman story and experience. It was a complete story and a film, don't get me wrong, but it's clearly only the start of Superman's story. A lot of the criticisms and the complaints about the film seem to stem from that expectation and holding Man of Steel to standards of a fully seasoned and established paragon. Now, to be fair, if you had been doing nothing but consuming Superman media leading up to the film, the bulk of that employs the hero at his pinnacle. So you would have had skewed expectations going in if you're reading stories like All-Star Superman or Kingdom Come, where Superman is at the end of his career in a final and great hurrah, only to be confronted with the novice in Man of Steel. Or even if you went back and watched Superman Returns, there, again, you have a terminal story that could almost be retitled The Death of Lois and Clark. However, it was always clear to me that this was the beginning of Superman's larger and continuing story. And in order for a universe to be built, a degree of continuity must exist. And so that's why it's great to hear that this is very much a sequel. Now, second, we are told that this will be a Superman-heavy film. And I've already done an episode and a video on this. I think you know my position on that. A Superman-heavy film is great news because it gets Superman into the position that he needs to be for the Justice League. And justifying the Justice League opens up the whole DCCU. Third, we're told that some time has passed. And to me, this is a huge relief because there is so much housekeeping and logistics to get you from Man of Steel to a Superman. Most of that, however, doesn't make for compelling storytelling or filmmaking. By approaching the story in media res, we get right to it. Today's contemporary audiences have completely acclimated to flashbacks and time skips, and they're more than willing to fill in the blanks with the clues that we have, rather than being required to be spoon-fed a bunch of dry logistics. And if you're like me, the puzzle of figuring it all out is fascinating and engaging on an entirely different level, all on its own. I'm glad that we're going to get right into a Superman story, and I'm anticipating having a lot of fun trying to connect the dots from Man of Steel to Batman v Superman. Fourth, we're told that Lois and Clark are living together. Well, this episode covered pretty thoroughly why I believe that they'd be beyond the infatuation in the Donner films, and so this will be the first time on film that we see the two in a serious, committed relationship that isn't just flirtation or some awkward stalking. I'm sure that you all have that friend, or maybe you're that person 
whose life was completely transformed for the better once they have a real significant other. For the audience members that didn't quite get Superman's change in disposition at the end of Man of Steel, the two of them being together in Batman v Superman should hopefully help make that change more intuitive to them. Now, if the two live together, it's implicit that they are probably a public couple as well. Now, far be it from me to judge modern metropolitan roommate situations like these, which could be platonic, but I think it's fair to say that the former is more probable and more likely than the latter. Cohabiting couple seems much more likely than platonic odd couple. It will be interesting to see how or if they address the interaction of this with the secret identity, especially if Superman also seems to have public ties to Lois. Fifth, we're told that Clark would rather be reporting on Batman. Well, this illustrates that Clark hasn't unrealistically been promoted to a senior journalist, able to pick and choose his assignments as he will, in his short time as a reporter. It perhaps calls into question his initial motive for becoming a reporter if he's put on assignments that don't allow him access to the people in danger or in need. The way that this is worded, it appears that Batman's existence is known, at least to a degree, and to a certain extent it makes sense that Clark would want to know if there are others out there like himself. Sixth, it's claimed that Superman helps Lois out in the Middle East. This shows that they're continuing with Lois almost as a war correspondent who goes where the story is, even if it's dangerous. If true, I'm in favor of the international implications because A, it's realistic, and B, it provides justification for Superman's main jurisdiction being the United States and Metropolis. I have nothing against Superman being a global hero, but traditionally, Superman stories take place in or around Metropolis and U.S. soil disproportionately compared to other locales. And so that's what I like seeing him in. I don't mind seeing Spider-Man on the Congo River or Batman in the Sahara Desert on occasion, but I prefer them in their respective cities, and so it's the same for Superman for me. You can completely understand why China wouldn't want Superman over their airspace and why the international community, or even the U.S., may ask Superman to limit his jurisdiction and why Superman may agree in order to limit international conflict. The flip side of this is that the Justice League will likely serve as a means to increase that jurisdiction, so we don't have to worry about Superman not being a global hero in the big picture. Seventh, we're told that Superman tells a villain that he's not going to break his neck, but he loses his cool and then threatens to break his back. Now, without context and performance, I don't think it's fair to judge the dialogue, but we can approach it as a logic and consistency issue like we've been doing with all these other rumors, and from that perspective, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. Zod's death was significant. It's reasonable that the issue could be and is raised again rather than being swept under the rug. Now regarding Superman's temper, on one hand, there is a certain amount of precedence for it, but on the other hand, I'd like to see him grow a thicker skin. But once again, we don't have the context, so we don't know how he could be pushed to make such a threat. This might be the only thing that I have a slight negative gut reaction to, but even there, I have faith. Now I'm just spitballing, but one reconciliation of the dialogue is if the big bad described in the article is actually Batman whose goal is to push Superman's buttons and test the limits of the alien's patience. 
The article casts Batman as cautious, not condemning, and somebody with Batman's inclinations would be justifiably concerned that Superman's record of heroism could be tested and cracked. The iron-willed Batman has probably come right up to that edge many times himself in his own career. Say nothing of this country bumpkin with godlike powers. So what if Batman, at the end of his career and his usefulness to humanity, sets out for one last death wish of a mission to see if this Superman is the genuine article or if he's just an alien apocalypse and tyrant waiting to happen. Batman makes it his mission with prep time to annoy the Man of Steel to the breaking point, to see if Superman will or could kill again and slide down that slippery slope towards despotism. In other words, Batman is trying to get Superman to kill him. In that context, Superman threatening to break Batman's back after being pushed to the brink by the Batman with prep time, perhaps, for example, tricking him into believing that Lois is dead or harmed at his hand, it becomes plausible, excusable, and a nod to the comics. Superman with his hands wrapped around Batman's throat, wanting to, but not killing Batman, would be a crazy inversion of The Dark Knight Returns while preserving both characters. You can hear the line, Clark, in all the years to come, in your most private moments, I want you to remember your hand at my throat. I want you to remember the one man who beat you. Except, just like The Dark Knight Returns, he doesn't beat him because Superman doesn't kill Batman. Superman passes the test, and hopefully he forgives Batman for his insane methods, and then in the third act, they move on to the next threat, working together. This allows the logical conclusion of Superman winning the battle, winning the moral test, but it also lets Batman throw everything he can at Superman, and by bringing Superman up to the brink and up to that moment, it's sort of a victory for Batman as well, in that he was able to test the alien, but come away with an ally and a fellow hero. Now, Aeth, we're told that Swanwick perceives Superman as a hero, and that Superman will stem the tide of collateral. In a recent blog post, I talk about the point of the drone scene, which explains why Swanwick and Superman are likely allies. We touched a little bit on this in the Secret Identity episode, and so it makes perfect sense to me. As far as Superman avoiding collateral damage, I don't see it as a direct rebuttal to Man of Steel, but simply as a progression of Superman with more experience and a threat that allows for such consideration. Now regarding the dialogue itself, I'll defer to my earlier statements of how we lack context and we lack delivery. Ninth, we're told that the world generally regards Superman as a hero, and that's consistent with what he did in Man of Steel and our analysis throughout this show and the website. I appreciate that because irrespective of what the critics are saying outside the film and what they may think, their views shouldn't necessarily compromise the reality of the fictional world. Now, from the perspective of a critic, like the individual who published these rumors, he may see and frame parts of the script as addressing his concerns, but that may simply be a biased attention towards these things that he believes are issues, rather than their importance or their delivery in the film itself. Tenth and finally, we're told that Doomsday is in this film, and I have mixed feelings about this. I should start off by saying that I like Doomsday, but in small doses. I'm not really a fan because he tends to lack dimension. To me, Doomsday always seemed like a bit of a walking plot device. I don't discount his role in epic Superman story arcs, but that's about it. I think many of the objections to his use are because he is so strongly tied to 
and associated with the death of Superman, the mind is immediately drawn to that event, its significance, and then it creates an expectation along those lines which doesn't seem to fit with this Superman's second silver screen outing. However, as Doomsday is a plot device, he actually makes for something of a perfect disposable supervillain. His backstory and his characterization are almost irrelevant since he really is just a dragon to slay. His nature means that he isn't necessarily wasted and he could return if deemed compelling enough. Personally, I think any dreams or ideas that the death of Superman will appear cinematically should be disavowed. I think it's clear that they want to do original stories and the death of Superman isn't readily adapted and somewhat contravenes the spirit of building up the DC Cinematic Universe and the life of Superman. So I'm not worried about using up Doomsday's debut on Batman v Superman. My concern about Doomsday comes from his origin and his depth or lack thereof. Now, depending on the execution, I might be a little bit disappointed if Doomsday is the product of Kryptonian technology in human hands, only because we're making Superman the sole source of quote-unquote magic in this universe, which is quickly going to expand to include cyborgs and speedsters and Amazons and Atlanteans. As far as depth is concerned, I'm not worried so long as the rest of the film delivers. The Avengers essentially spent no time on the Chitauri, and yet it was a satisfying superhero experience. So Batman v Superman may find its character moments and depth elsewhere. I don't know that parsing my concerns really means anything. It's more of a gut reaction. And in order to do this episode and research Lois, I did go back through the older Superman films. And something about Doomsday with Luther behind him summons to mind uncomfortable parallels with the quest for peace. With a story about the real-world implications of Superman internationally, a mostly mindless monster with no depth sourced from Kryptonian genetic material and manipulated by Lex Luthor. <laughs> I shudder to think. However, these are merely fears and worries for just one point when compared to the great weight of good news that this report alleges. In fact, imagine if I drew some of the same parallels between Man of Steel and Superman 2. And in fact, I could have had the same or similar issues. And in fact, I did. I believe I have some posts back from 2011 or 2012 where I was worried about how two Kryptonians facing off would be boring. Because in prize fights styles make fights. In other words, the difference in style makes for more entertaining and interesting fights. Well, I needn't have been worried, because not only did they find a way to have different styles, with Zod lacking flight for part of the fight, but it was definitely entertaining. Even if all we have at this point are broad strokes for this report, so far, I like the picture that's being painted. So that's it for this episode. It's a little oversized, but hopefully it will hold you over during the holidays. When we return, we'll be tackling those big controversies, any new DCCU news, and of course your mailbag questions. Merry Christmas, and see you in 2015.